one of the most significant places revival begins is when we understand who we are in Christ. If you are visiting with us or you're new to Hardy Street, I'll give you a little background. Our church is in a season of seeking the Lord in revival. And we're looking at heart cries from Scripture, mainly from the book of Isaiah. And we began crying out just a couple of weeks ago and said this prayer, Oh God, would you restore our vision of your awesomeness? I want you to say that with me. Let's say it together. Oh God, restore our vision of your awesomeness. The idea was very simple, that God alone is awesome. We go to the mall and we say, oh, look, those shoes are awesome. No, they're not. They're shoes. God alone is awesome. He alone is awe-inspiring. And we need to hold that place of awe and wonder in our hearts for God alone. But that was our prayer. We looked at that from Isaiah chapter 40. Last week, our cry was this, and I want you to say it with me. Oh, God, restore our faith. Let's say it again. Oh, God, restore our faith. And we looked at a beautiful picture, an unfolding of the gospel in Isaiah 53. If you look at Isaiah 53, maybe one of the most significant passages in the Old Testament. It tells us who Jesus is, it tells us what Jesus did, and it tells us why that matters. And as we look at the gospel that unfolded there, we saw all that Jesus did. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was uh, by the, the, the punishment that was uh, to bring us peace was laid upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And then Isaiah asked an interesting question last week. He asked the question, who really believes this? Who actually believes it? He was looking at the, the people of God, and I asked you that. Do you really believe that Jesus is for you? That Jesus cares for you, that he loved you and gave himself for you. And we saw last week the need to tell yourself that every single day. Just as we sang it a moment ago, it is healthy for you to preach the gospel to yourself every single day. To tell yourself who you are in Christ and what Christ has done for you. And, and to begin to understand that he loves you. You know, knowing the gospel subconsciously, I said this last week, will not transform your life. It will not restore your soul. The person whose soul is restored ultimately has a picture of the awesomeness of God and they believe him. Now today's cry, I want us to put it on the screen and read it together. Read it with me. Oh God, restore our joy. Oh God, restore our joy. Oh that God would give to us a deep sense of complete satisfaction. That today you and I would experience him in fullness and he would carry us beyond the pains of this life and give us hope that settles our hearts with inexpressible joy. It's been said that one thing that unites all of us is that we want to be, say that word, happy. Would you agree with that? Anybody here want to be happy? That was like a third of you. The rest of you, either you already are happy or, or you're in denial this morning or you're asleep. Do you want to be happy in life? I think all of us want to be happy. And it's interesting, this is a universal thing. Blaise Pascal, who was a mathematician turned semi-theologian, said this, All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire in both attended with different views. 
they will never um, take the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. Think about that. He's saying that every action of our lives is motivated by a desire to be happy. Even someone who would come to the place and say, I think my life would be better off if I were not here. Now, taking your life is something you should never do. But I want you to see that there are some that would be motivated in that vein ultimately by a desire and a drive to be happy. That the pain of where they are is so severe that something has to change. And I believe that all of you at some levels live with a level of pain. And if the pain of staying the same is no greater than the pain of change, then you'll stay the same. Someone today in this room is carrying a heavy burden. Somebody here is facing strong pressure. Somebody here is experiencing big disappointment. Maybe you're experiencing struggle or you're living with big disappointment. All of us face it, and I've walked with you. We've had six or seven people in the hospital this week, and we've had people that have gone home to be with the Lord. So there are families that are mourning and grieving in our midst. And over time, that fatigues the body, and it drains the soul. Would you agree with me? Come on, church, help me out. Would, would you agree that those kinds of pains will sap the energy and strength out of your life? When you experience it for a long time, you need to know that God is for you. You need to know that He is for your joy. And some of you would say, yeah, right, Pastor. <laughs> you may tell that to somebody else, but I'm going to need a little proof. If you're going to tell me that God really wants me to be filled with joy, that, then my experience says otherwise. Well, let me take you back a week. That was last week's sermon. If you want to understand how God is for you, look no further than the cross. Because Jesus Christ willingly endured all of the scorn and the pain and the shame of the cross. And he endured the weight of our sin. And he did that because he loves you with an unending grace-filled love. Don't look past the cross. In fact, I would encourage you, if you've not been with us, go back and, and listen to that sermon on Isaiah 53. Begin to think of this, that there is no other explanation that his love was demonstrated for us there on the cross. And there is no other conclusion that we can rightly come to than this. God is for us. And he loves us. And he cares for us, and he demonstrated that for us. C.S. Lewis said this. C.S. Lewis said, God is more for your joy than you are. God is more for your joy than you are. Let's continue. We're going to walk through a passage of Scripture that will help us understand this. Listen to the words of C.S. Lewis early in his Christian life. He said this, our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but what? Too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the seaside. What a powerful picture. We are so satisfied with lesser things. The Bible uh, uh, is backed up so clearly by C.S. Lewis's words here. We are far too easily pleased. 
And like a child who would go on making mud pies, not knowing that there is more, not knowing that there is a deeper satisfaction. Here you and I are trying to make a happy life. And God has a way of happiness that is in view for you, and it's far beyond. It's far richer and greater and deeper than anything we could comprehend. And yet we settle. And that leads me to Isaiah 54. I invite your attention there. Isaiah chapter 54. Isaiah is going to share with us here an amazing thing. He's going to find joy in the most unlikely places. Isaiah is going today to paint for us three scenes of people who are experiencing joy who shouldn't be. Three people who are in the depths of difficulty in life. And I would say this, I would venture a guess that there are people in this room that will immediately identify with one, if not all, of these people because of the places of their depth. Some of you are going to leave this place and say, Isaiah 54, speaking to me. Isaiah paints these three scenes. So I want you to see scene number one. It's in verse one. It's the childless woman. Look at verse one of Isaiah 54. Sing, O childless woman, you who have never given birth. We know clearly the implication of that. This is for many, many women, a very painful source of sensitivity that they would not have children but I want you to understand in its context that it's even more complicated than what we might understand you see in ancient days one thing that you did have was land do you remember as we talked about the conquest God apportioned out the land to the tribes and so you had land and you could sustain yourself from the land if you had a team of people that could work it. Well, you didn't have the the means to hire out other tribes and other members and other people, so the most logical way that a family would have a team to work the land to sustain themselves was to have a lot of kids. And if they had a lot of kids, over time their, their their group would increase, their team would develop and grow, and they could work the land and sustain themselves. And so you need to see that a barren woman here in biblical times would find herself poor and destitute and ultimately hungry. Isaiah is painting for us a picture of intense sorrow. He says to this one a message. Now we're going to come to the rest of their story as we unfold the sermon but scene number one is a barren or childless woman somebody say with me scene number two I want you to see the deserted wife look at verse six for the Lord has called you back from your grief as though you were a young wife abandoned by her husband imagine with me if you will a a woman who All of her dreams seem to be coming true. There's a fairy tale romance. She marries young, but over time she begins to realize that his affection and his attention for her are waning. And ultimately he begins to give her a cold shoulder and finally he comes to a place where he rejects her entirely and he divorces her. He leaves her. Some of you have experienced rejection today. It may not be a breaking up of a marriage, but you have felt like something was going to work out well and someone rejected you and all of your dreams of joy were dashed. Isaiah talks about this one being distressed in spirit. 
You lose confidence in yourself. Your life seems to be adrift. Then Isaiah gives to us a third picture. We have a barren woman. We have a deserted wife. And thirdly, the scene that we'll see is an afflicted city. Look in verse 11 with me. In verse 11, it says something interesting. Oh, storm-battered city, troubled and desolate. It's a city lashed by storms. Anybody here in your imagination, can you picture a city that's been lashed by a storm? It's not too hard. We think back to Katrina. We think back to Gustav and Rita and Michael and Wilma and Sandy and Ike. I just began to look over the last 10 years at some of the storms we've had. You, you can look at the campus of William Carey in, in the wake of a tornado. Cars flipped over, buildings destroyed, homes crushed, people's dreams and their livelihood taken. The power is taken away from us. And so now those things that we take so for granted are gone, lashed, desolate. But I want you to see something interesting. As we consider this city, I think there's more to it than just violent storms, physical storms. One translation says this is a tempest-driven city. Think of those people who drive into cities and, and fight with the traffic and they go into a cutthroat business world and they're fighting to make a living and the city seems to be relentlessly demanding place to spend your work life. So what I would say to you is the choice of these three pictures a childless woman, a deserted wife, and a, a, a city that is driven by tempest. All three of those would be very appropriate for us today, and here's why. Because it is natural in our lives, we are inclined to seek happiness in three places. In our children, in our marriages, and in our money. Would you agree with that? We begin to look for happiness there. So what happens, church, look at me and think about this. What happens when your children go off the rails? What happens when your children rebel? What happens when they leave and don't come back? What happens when your marriage is on the rocks or your career crumbles? Your boss walks in with a pink slip and you lose your job. What happens when your business crashes? What then? Is your joy gone? If your children or your marriage or your career is gone, if you're seeking happiness in those things and they are gone, then yes, your happiness can be taken away. But I want you to see this. If your joy is based on circumstances, you will constantly be tempted to make excuses for not having joy. I think the most miserable creature on earth is a Christian living outside the will of God with no joy in their life. I see joyless Christians countless numbers all around. I'm not pointing at anybody. I'm not looking directly at anybody. But I see Christians who have let life zap their joy. And they have hitched their wagon to all kinds of externals. I mean, just listen. If your faith, I've said this over and over again from this pulpit, I love America. I am so thankful. It does not make me any less patriotic, though. However, to say that the, the solution to all of the ills of our country will not come from the White House. They'll come from the church house. And it does not make me any less patriotic to say so, but it can and will make me less of a Christian if I hitch my wagon to the presidency or the White House or to the Congress or the government. My faith alone stands in Christ alone. And we better have that picture. 
if your joy is dependent on external circumstances, when the external circumstances change, your happiness goes away. Joy is an inside job. And Isaiah paints a picture for three people. Think about that. Oh, if only, if only my kids acted right. If only I had a little more money. If only my spouse would pay me more attention. If only, if only. And if the if never comes, the only never happens. Isaiah sees joy in unlikely places. Look back with me, if you will, to Isaiah 54.1. What is this childless woman doing? This is audience participation time. You can read the text and answer. It's an open book test. What does he say for her to do? Sing. She's shouting for joy. Look at verse 6. What about the abandoned woman? She is secure and she knows that she is loved. What about the afflicted city? What's happening to the city in verse 11? Look with me if you will. O storm-battered city, troubled and desolate, what does God say he will do? Rebuild. But it's not just any rebuilding project. It's not just nails and sheetrock. It's not just plywood and two-by-fours. He said, I'm going to rebuild it with precious stones. Now, I want you to do something with me, church. I want you to follow with me to chapter 55, verse 12, because this is really a larger section. 54 paints the picture of those desperate situations. 55 gives a promise. 55, 12. Look at if, with, with me, if you will. At verse 12, pretty amazing if you begin to go that far down. You will live in joy and in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song, and the trees of the field will clap their hands. He says literally, you will go out in joy. He says you will go out and be led in peace. How, here's the question, how can this barren woman, this deserted wife, And the people who live in this storm-ravaged city, how can those people who would experience unbelievable pain, how can they be led out in joy and in peace and in celebration? And the reason that question is fundamental today is because for most of us, you would say, if they can find it, then maybe I can find it. Maybe joy is available for me. Maybe there's a place of happiness that goes beyond my circumstance. And so today, I want us to draw this in, in that direction. Here is this barren woman. Here's this deserted wife who is secure. The barren woman who is singing. And those in the city who are finding it rebuilt in incredible ways. Well, let's begin in verse 1 again. What is she doing? She's singing. Why is she singing? Look with me if you will. Sing, O childless woman. You who have never given birth, break into loud and joyful song, O Jerusalem. You who have never been in labor, and look at the answer. For the desolate woman has now more children than the woman who lives with her husband, says the Lord. You you see, she has found a community around her in the people of God. And in doing so, she is loved and loves these kids like they're her own. And they love her like she is their mother. She has found joy, say it with me, where? It's on the screen, in God's people. She found joy in God's people. She recognized that there is a deeper level of joy, not just in the children of her own offspring, but in the family of God, in a community of faith. 
Hang on to that. We're going to go somewhere with it as we move toward the city of God. This woman has now gone through the emotional trauma, but she has dignity and confidence, and her shame and disgrace and humiliation is gone. Why? Look at verse 6. For the Lord has called you back from your grief, as though you were abandoned wife. By her husband, says the Lord, for a brief moment I abandon you, but with great compassion I will take you back. In a burst of anger I turn my face away a little while with an everlasting love. I have had compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. You see, the Lord himself, your maker, is your husband. And this one has found joy in the love of God. Everybody say that. She found joy where? In God's love. So the first woman, the barren woman, found love in the company of God's people. The, the deserted wife found love in, uh, or found joy in God's love. And you begin to see in God's people and in the love of God, we can experience lasting joy. Now I want you to go to the third place and this will begin to put all of the picture together for us. Look at the ruined city. What's happening to it? Verse 12. He goes on and he says this, oh, or excuse me, verse 11. Oh, storm-battered city, troubled and desolate, I will rebuild you with precious jewels. He goes on and describes rubies and other gemstones that he will do. I will teach all your children peace, uh, and they, uh, you'll be secure under a government that's just and fair. Your enemies will stay away. You will live in peace, and terror will not come near. If any nation comes to fight you, it is not because I sent them. Whoever attacks you will go down in defeat. God is describing a secure place. This will not happen at the hands of the Republicans. It will not happen at the hands of the Democrats. It will happen when God is at the center of that city. And you know what this sounds like to me? A whole lot like heaven. A city of precious gemstones where the asphalt is gold. And there's things that we can't even describe. The purity of the jasper and the beauty of the pearl gates and the wonder and the splendor of the glassy sea. All that God describes. But the Bible says here that those people would find their joy in God's city. Now for you and for me, if we really begin to put this together, I'm beginning to see a picture of heaven that Isaiah is painting 700 years before Jesus even arrives. You see, chapter 53, he begins to tell us there's coming a Savior. And then he moves forward and he says, and by the way, this is what it'll look like. Those who have found themselves empty and dejected and lonely. Those who have found themselves rejected harshly. And those who have found themselves kicked in the teeth by life and struggling through the tempest of this world will all find lasting joy. He says, sing, find security, move forward in safety and in confidence and in gladness. How does that apply to all of us? It's amazing if you begin to think about it. Someone who's had sorrow in their life can find real joy. Some of you doubt that hypothesis. Some of you have gone through such a blow in your life, you go, I don't know if I'll ever be happy again. Be honest, have you ever said that? Many of you have. I've heard some of you have said it to me. Pastor, I don't know that my heart can ever sing again. And God says here that there is a place of singing and rejoicing and confidence in his people and in his love and in his city. Now, let's begin to think through this. The fullness of joy 
awaits the day that Jesus comes again. Would you agree with that? Because then he will come in glory and in power. But you need to know something, church family. We can experience that joy beginning today. That joy is already ours in Christ. Why? Because we don't have to wait till we're only surrounded by God's people. And one day that will be the case. One day all unrighteousness will be judged and cast into the lake of fire. And we will be his people dwelling with him forever. Right now we live with wheat and tares. We live with some weeds around us. It's not all good fruit. But we have the fruit of God's people around us. And we can experience the joy of relationships with one another today. It's going to grow. It'll only increase because there's coming a day when he rids the world of all unrighteousness. But we can grow in the presence of God's people. Those of you that might find yourself uh, barren or rejected can realize that the love of God can be here. I've seen so many people who have raised generations of children and generations have looked up to them as a mom or as a grandmother because of their investment. They may have never had children of their own, but the people of God became for them an extended family. I've told you of a dear friend that I have who lives in, in uh, I need to say it this way, he lives in South Asia. And he was of another religious persuasion. And when he came to Christ, his father spit in his face and said, you're dead to me. Get out. His father since then has continually tempted him and said, I have $10,000 and a house for you if you'll renounce Christ and come back. And he says, the, the fleeting riches of this world mean nothing compared to all that God has promised me in and through Christ Jesus. And the family that he has been given, a spiritual family, includes you and me. God has never once left any of his own forsaken and begging for bread. You can find joy in the people of God and in the love of God, and you can find it in the city of God. You need to understand that on that day we will experience fully the love of God, but we can taste the love of God here and now. We've come to know the one that is building that city, whose builder and maker is God, is building up this city. He's building us together, not Hattiesburg, but a spiritual community of believers who live for him, and we get to be a part of that the prevailing church uh, against whom he said the gates of hell cannot prevail we have our place among that and you don't need to wait until you have a, an experience of disaster to pursue this joy listen to these words read it with me if you will joy in Jesus Christ will free you to savor all other joys in your life and will strengthen you to face all sorrows in your life. Think about that with me. If you'll place your focus on having joy in Christ, it will bolster the ability to enjoy every other joy and it will help you to withstand every sorrow in your life. Can I tell you out of my personal experience, there are single people who have this kind of joy and I know single people who don't. There are wealthy people that I know in my life that have this kind of joy. And I know wealthy people who don't. There are married people who live in inexpressible joy in Christ. 
And I know some that don't. There are people that have little of nothing in terms of earthly possessions. There are people that have a, a large measure of health, and I know people whose health is waning and failing, and they struggle to, to breathe, and they struggle to walk, and they struggle to move, and yet many of them have this joy, and some of them do not. That kind of joy I will experience for all eternity, a joy that goes beyond my personal circumstances. Hallelujah. That's where Isaiah 55 comes in, and that is where we turn the corner and move from despair to joy. And if this really is a heart cry for revival, it starts by saying, Oh God, would you give me a vision of yourself? And God, would you restore my faith? Help me to believe that Jesus is for me and that he loved me and he gave himself. And then restore my joy. You see, if we want to see revival come to Hattiesburg, Mississippi, it will come through believers who are living in the power of the Spirit of God and expressing the joy of Jesus on a daily basis. It won't come because we're sour and mad or we're gritting our teeth and waiting for the government to fix it or waiting for some other external solution. If those lost people would just act like Christians, everything would be better. No. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven. I'll forgive their sin and I'll heal their land. Interesting. Look at verse 1 of chapter 55 very quickly. Is anyone thirsty? Come and drink. Even if you have no money, come take your choice of wine or milk. It's all free. Why spend your money on food that does not give you strength? Why pay for food that does you no good? Listen to me and you will eat what is good. You will enjoy the finest food. Let's just stop there for a moment. It all starts with thirst. The people who find this joy and in whom it grows are the ones who have a deep thirst for it. They know they don't have it. They long for it. They know they don't have what it takes to get it, but they have a, a craving, a desire. Let me say this. The real distinction in this room is not married or single. It's not Parent or not. It's not grandparent or not. It's not rich or poor, smart or not. The real distinction in this room is thirsty or not. Some of you have a deep thirst for the things of God, but some of you are filled with a sense of contentment. And I don't mean peaceful contentment. I just mean a worldly, simple satisfaction without God. You come to church and you listen to a sermon and you walk away. There are others that come to church and they hear a sermon and they're moved to tears. And I'm not trying to be a cheerleader to prey on your emotions. My desire is that you would encounter Christ and that you would cry out, God, restore my joy. Can I tell you something? You won't ask God to restore your joy and your soul until you realize you need it. And some of you won't just come to church and listen to a sermon. You'll come and listen to this whole series of sermons. I'm preaching my heart and my guts out to say, Oh God, restore our church. Restore our city. Restore our families. Restore my soul. And some of you will walk away and say, What's for lunch? You'll check the box and say, Next, unmoved. 
with no thirst for the things of God. And, and, and I'm not being pointed there. I'm just pointing out a reality that we experience every single week. God has many ways to bring us to this place. Jesus brought clarity to this in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. The word blessed means happy, joy-filled. It starts with being poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Think about this. When you know that your soul needs to be restored, you feel it. Sorrow, write this down, sorrow is often a pathway to God's joy. That's a difficult thing to preach. That's not being preached in every pulpit this morning, but I see it clearly from Isaiah 54. He, he takes the scenarios of these different people and shows us that sorrow can for us become a pathway to joy. And that's why the childless woman and the deserted wife and the people who are are living in this destroyed city, they were the first to find it. Why? Because those who were happy and content with their lives never stopped to seek it. Why were there so many prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners that ran to Jesus and not so many Pharisees? You ever thought about that? Sorrow can create a thirst that you did not have before. When life is comfortable, oftentimes we sail through it without asking the question, what is my life for? Some of you have never asked regarding those areas in Isaiah 54, what is my marriage really for? What are my children really for? What is my job really for? Let me ask you married folks, how many of you have been married for 25 years or more? 30 years or more? 50 years or more? 60 years or more. There's still hands up. I won't keep going there. But think about this. Did God give you a marriage so you could snuggle up together in your condo for 30 or 40 or 50 years? Did, did God give you children so your kids could play soccer and ride horses in the suburbs? Is that all there is in this life? Did God give you a job and did God, his plan for our city, is his plan for our city that thousands of people would make millions of dollars or is there a greater purpose for which he planted this church in this city for this day and age? Maybe it's that your marriage ought to be a representation of the gospel. Maybe it's that you would train children who would be like arrows in the hands of a warrior and you would shoot them into the world and they would reach the far corners of the globe with the gospel. Maybe God gave you a job so that you could earn money not to just make a living but to live a life that is used as a steward for his purposes. I've said this before. Many of you saved for years or months or or whatever to send your kids on great vacations and I'm not at all against vacations. But did you set aside money to send them on mission trips? Did you establish a mindset, I want my kids to go to kids camp and to youth camp. Or you don't have kids, here's that extended family. I'll give so that other kids can go to camp or on mission. You see, that's where joy comes in. When we start asking, what is this life all about? What is my marriage for? What are my kids for? What is my job for? It's interesting to me. 
the default mode of the human heart is to seek happiness in our children, our marriages, and our careers. And the Bible has a word for that. It's called idolatry. And idolatry always fails. That's why there are millions of people living in quiet desperation in unsatisfying marriages. That's why there are many people who may not ever would say this, but their children have brought them greater pain and struggle than they've ever experienced joy. Millions upon millions are living in poverty, carving out an existence in cities that are devastated. But throughout generations, all over the world, there are people who find that sorrow, at times, is a pathway to the joy of God. Because sorrow can lead you to discover a thirst that you never knew existed. Let me kind of bring us toward a close in our thinking. One man who understood great and deep sorrow was a man named John Newton. Some people know the story of John Newton. He was a, a, a slave trader. He was a slave owner. He, he had boats and he was in that world. And he came to Christ. And that's why this man who lived a wretched life never ever got over the saving grace of Jesus. And he wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace, that we know of. That became for him a, a heart cry. But he wrote a lot of other songs you may not have ever heard of. And I read about one this week. It was amazing to me. Here's the name of the song. I asked the Lord that I might grow. And I just want to share the lyrics with you. There's most all of them. I want you to see these. I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace. Might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. You see, we could stop there and all of you would say, I, I would just pray that every day. Brother Scott, if you put that on a pretty bookmark, I think that would be a great prayer that I would experience his grace and his love. But listen farther to Newton's words. I hoped that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request. And by his constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. You're saying, now wait a minute, Pastor. I like the first verse. Let's, sing, let's skip this stanza. Listen to this. Yea, more with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I'd schemed, humbled my heart and laid me low. In fact, this is a, a modern rendition when he wrote it where it says, humbled my heart. He said, he blasted my gourds. I love that. You know what a gourd is if you know from Jonah's day that there was a gourd and God allowed it to rise up and then he took it away. He, he's saying he blasted my gourds. He took away my comfort. He, he humbled my heart. But listen to this. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break your schemes of earthly joy that you may seek your all where? In me. God said all I'm doing is being done so that you'll come to me. If you want joy, come and drink. Come and drink deeply and fully of it. Jesus said that, come to me all who are thirsty. <laughs> oh, that you and I would experience in the midst of sadness and sorrow, unbelievable restoration of joy. And when we do, we're on the pathway toward revival. 
Oh, that God would speak to our hearts. Let me close this out by giving you four key words you need to see that are in Isaiah 55. Come and listen, seek and turn. Come and listen, come from verses 1 and then a little farther down to listen. And then he tells us that we are to seek him to turn. Here is how you cultivate joy. If you want to walk away with three easy steps, I'm not going to give them to you. But I can tell you that this is the pathway. Come and seek. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Jesus would quote from this, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Jesus is speaking. And here, Jesus is speaking through the prophet Isaiah 700 years before Jesus comes to this earth. And he says, come to me. Come and seek me. You'll find joy. You must come to Jesus. Today, if you're not experiencing joy in your life, I can tell you the remedy. Come to Jesus. He'll save your soul. He'll give you hope for that city, that glorious love, that glorious unending community. And it begins even here today. It begins with believing. Those who believe will come. Some will come and listen to a sermon and go home. Some will come and listen and be changed forever. Maybe you need to do this. Maybe you'll follow after that thought of last week's sermon and you'll pray, Lord, make me a person who really believes. Maybe you'll pray, Lord, make, make me a person who really has joy. You, you may want to ask him to forgive you for moaning or complaining or murmuring or fault-finding or criticizing your brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe today you need to ask him to forgive you for loving the politics of the church more than the people of the church. Maybe you need to ask him to give you eyes to see where he's working in the hearts and lives of your brothers and sisters rather than judging them. Maybe you need to ask him to give you joy and new life. Restore to me the joy of thy salvation. Give me a clearer grasp of the hope that is in your city one day. I, I, I just thought about this. God, I don't even know my future in this city. But I do know my future in that city. It is secure and set and written about. And so God, give me the strength to believe today in 2019 in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, that the confidence and security of your protective guiding hand that will be over that city will be over this city and that I will experience daily joy. What would it look like? What would it look like what would the impact be if the 300 or 350 people that are in this room began hammering heaven with those kinds of prayers? You see, all of these are prayers. Lord, restore a vision. Lord, restore my faith. Lord, restore our joy. What would it look like if we got on our faces before God and said, Oh God, would you restore Hardy Street Baptist Church? Not to former glory, not to something that it's been in the past, but to whatever you want it to be today. The reason that we see joy not found in circumstances clearly presented here is for you and me. We can't find joy in circumstances, but you need to know this. If they can find it, so can you. If this barren woman, this deserted wife, these people living in a tempest-driven, ravaged city, those that potentially would put their faith and trust and hope and confidence in their children, their marriages, and their money. 
If they can find it, so can you. But the way we find it is that we come and seek, and then we listen to the Word of God, and we obey it. I love that picture. Those who go out in joy have developed a pattern of life where they come and see and they listen and seek. We need to receive the Word of God into our lives. I want to encourage you to join a Bible fellowship group where you can study the Word. Pick up one of the reading guides and begin to read with us so the Word of God becomes part of your life. And don't just be a hearer of the Word. Do it. James said that. Come, seek, listen, and turn. Turn to the Lord. One who looks at the word and does it. That person, they'll be blessed, happy, joyful. This is how joy in God's people, in God's love, and ultimately in God's city come to the hearts of his people and revive and restore our souls. Stand with me as I'm praying. Oh, Father, today that there would be in our company men, women, boys, and girls who would turn to you. They would come to Jesus today. They would receive you gladly and begin to experience inexpressible joy. Lord, life can and does and has let us down, but you never will. God, let your people have a place of full experience of